0: We've started learning about King Manasseh in chapter 21, Kings 2. We saw the first nine verses, and Manasseh seems to be the most evil king ever. Looking at the verses, uh, it's not even close. You know, even comparing him to the kings of Israel, he's up there with the worst of them. We basically uh, saw that uh, each verse is one sin after another. In virtually every category, he is transgressing. And he's a king of Judea where the kings of Judea were usually pretty solid, Menashe is uh, breaking all the records, sinning like uh, no other king of Judea ever sinned before. And uh, before we uh, go on to learn more about Menashe in our chapter, we want to try to understand, you know, how did this come about? After all, King Menashe, he's the son of the righteous King uh, that was who's probably the greatest, one of the greatest kings we ever had. And yet he's nothing like his father, Can there be an explanation for this other than the simple fact that it often happens that the apple sometimes falls far from the tree, that the son doesn't always go in the way of the father. But this is surely an extreme case of that. You go from Chizkiah, who the sages say could have been the Messiah, to Manasseh, who's the king who brings on the destruction of the temple and the Babylonian exile. That's all on Manasseh's shoulders. We're going to see that. You know, it's like going from redemption to destruction in one generation. Or maybe it's like Ronald Reagan once said, freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. And that's true. You know, you figure, though, with, the, with a run of good kings, a lot of good Jewish kings there, one bad apple makes everything rotten, spoils the whole bunch. Well, remember, it's not just Chizkiyahu. His grandfather, Ahaz, was also pretty bad, did a lot of damage. And maybe that has something to do with it. We'll get into that. But um, the thing is, uh, what do the commentators say about it? Ha- do they relate to this uh, question? What made Benashe, uh stray so so far from the path of the Torah? So unlike his father. So the so which is a, a modern commentary, he relates to it a little bit. First of all, he reminds us that King Chizkiyahu was pretty old when he had Benashe, right? We know Chizkiyahu was childless, uh, And then he was given another 15 years to live. And during that time, he had Menashe. So he had Menashe in the last decade of his life. And maybe he was just old. That's what uh, the Tatsophe speculates. You know, it's hard to discipline a child when you get older. Especially Chizkiah went through a lot as king of Judea, all those years of battling Assyria, battling inside his own kingdom, uh, all kinds of different opinions of what to do with Assyria. I mean, he might have been worn down. He had, he was, he was the king in maybe the toughest area you could be a king in when Assyria was just running rampant over, over the world. And maybe that wore him down, you know, it was a grind on him. And he didn't have the energy required for the rigors of child raising. That's a possibility. Just like King Solomon, if you remember, King Solomon, he was going great. If you look at the book of Kings, the beginning, he was going great for a while. And then what happens? You get to chapter 11, I think it is, and it says, and when Solomon got old, his wives led him astray. That is, he was able to handle those foreign women he married when he was still young, but when he got older, that's when the trouble began. He didn't have the same energy to discipline and control and rebuke and do all the things he got to do. He was tired. So maybe that's what happened a little bit here with Hizkiah and Manasseh. That could be part of it. You know, it could contribute to it. Now, also contributing to this whole... Uh, situation. Uh this is also the Datsofrim uh speculates is that um who's hanging around the palace now? I mean all probably all kinds and types of people are in the courtyard of the king who don't think like Khisqiao thinks. Remember Shevna HaSofer? He was a close aide to Khiskyao and he didn't think like Khiskyao when he rallied a majority against Khiskyao, you know, against the Chizquiao's rebellion against the Syria. So there's a lot of people like that who don't think Chizkiyahu's view is the proper view and it's not the prevailing view in the, in, the, in the palace. So all those people could have been an influence on Menashe because if you're not going to go like Chizkiyahu and you're going to um, maybe make an alliance with some of these nations, that's going to change things as we'll see. Um, then remember Rav Sheke, Rav Sheke was an apostate Jew who went to the other side, uh, Yudim Umar, and maybe there were a whole bunch of apostate Jews walking around the courtyard of the king that can influence a young, impressionable Menashe who ruled at the tender age of 12. Now, it's not that all these people around Menashe, his advisors and so forth, and obviously if you're ruling at 12 years old, you're dependent on your advisors. Um, It's not that they're advocating idol worship. But we have to remember the political situation. Menashe and his advisors might have thought it's politically expedient to align themselves with Assyria and whatever other nations are in the region. Who needs to stand alone? You see, Chizkiyahu, he was unique in that regard. But he's actually the aberration. Because if before Chizkiyahu, you had Ahaz, That's the grandfather of Menashe. And Ahaz, if you recall, he chose to subjugate himself to Assyria and the son of Achaz, rebelled. But that took a lot of guts. And that's why Chizkiyahu is known for being endowed with this great attribute of bitachon and Hashem and trust in emunah. But not everybody can be that way. Menashe doesn't go that way. Instead, he adopts a policy of appeasement. Now, what does that have to do with worshipping the Baal and the Molech and all the other sins attributed to Menashe? Well, remember, when you partner yourself to the nations, when you ally yourself to them, Their culture their culture invariably seeps into yours. You start to adopt their ways a little bit. It's just the nature of the beast. Even if you don't believe in it, it's just part of the appeasement process. You embrace their ways, you want to find favor in their eyes. And so when you globalize and you become international and don't stay alone and isolated, you bring their stuff onto your home turf. He was going in the path of a nation that dwells alone. And I, he was an isolationist. Levadad uh, means bidud, right? Not only alone, but he was for isolation. Uh, and that's uh, that's Hezkiyahu's way. We go with Hashem. Hashem, that's all we need. But if you're not going to be that way, if you're not on that level, yeah, you end up making deals with other nations. And that means, again, you're going to be uh, influenced by them. And if you remember, um, even pretty righteous kings like Yoash and Amaziahu, if you remember those kings we learned about, they also adopted uh, the Edomite deities, if you recall, that was in Chronicles, strictly for political reasons. They started to, uh, we see, embracing the deities of Edom. You know, what is that about? It's probably the same. That's what was done in those days. You ally yourself to them and to find favor in their eyes, you start to practice uh, their, uh, their religion. Now, it's important to point out that history teaches us that Assyria, they weren't a nation that forced its deities upon other nations. They didn't care about that. It wasn't like the, the Greeks trying to make everybody, uh, you know, Hellenists. But um, Ahaz, uh, for instance, he went in the way of Assyria. He wasn't forced to do it, but that was his way of appeasing the king of Assyria, So, Ahaz brought in the altars of Assyria and of Aram. That's their way of acquiescing if you're going to make an alliance or you want to be a vassal to them. Now, again, Chiskea wasn't that way. He rebelled against Assyria. He didn't want to be a vassal to anybody, but that took a lot of guts. Menasha doesn't go that way. And remember, Assyria, they're still dominating dominating the region. They're a force in the region, even after Sankhriv was murdered. We saw that in the last chapter. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers drop dead in the days of Chizkiah, in a miracle. But Assyria is still going strong. And they're going to be going strong for a while, maybe 100 years even from now until Babylon uh, eventually will, uh, you know, take over. But in the meantime, they're a force and Manasseh doesn't dare rebel against them. And if you don't rebel, then you're going to, as I, as I said, subject yourself to them in some way or another. And um, Chizkiah was into Havdalah from the nations, but that's a level. So we're not making excuses for Menashe. We're just trying to explain what his motivations might have been. And if you look in the Talmud, and Manasha's all over the Talmud, because he's an interesting character, an interesting king, and an evil one, but complex. And he wasn't superficial. I mean, he's no dummy. There's a piece of Talmud in Yibamot 49 where he actually gets into an ideological dispute with Isaiah the prophet, you know. So Menashe knows his aloha, as we're going to see in another piece of Talmud. And I want to bring this down. This is a, a fascinating uh, uh, gomorrah here. It's in Masechet Sanhedrin 102. And in uh, on these pages in Sanhedrin, there's a lot of discussion of what they call the big three, who are the big three? We're not talking about uh, basketball players, but we're talking about the big three sinners, those three kings that don't have a share in the world to come because their sins were so severe. And one of them is Yeruvah The other one is Ahab. And the third one is Menasha, who we're talking about. They're lumped together as the big three because they have no portion in the world to come. So they're really like the little three. And that's, you got to be pretty evil to be on that level because we know all of Israel has a portion in the world to come but there are exceptions and these three kings are the exception due to the gravity of their sins. So anyway, on page 102 here in Masechet Sanhedrin we have Rav Ashi uh, given a shiur. Now Rav Ashi is uh, an important rabbi in the Talmud. He actually compiled the Talmud. Okay? So he's a big rabbi and he's given a shiur on the big three. See, they used to teach Tanakh in those days, right? They didn't just look at moral all day. So, anyway, this is how it goes. Ravashi ended his lecture uh, to his, uh, to the sages. He was teaching them in a shur. And right before the end of the lecture, he told them that uh, we're going to talk tomorrow about our friend Menashe. That's what he said Al Haverenu Menashe. That is, they're going to be sure tomorrow, not just of Manasseh, but all three of those kings. But he used the word, our friend. So, uh, okay. So Ravashi uh, went to sleep that night, and Ravashi had a dream. And who came to him in the dream? Manasha, king of Judea, comes and appears to him in his dream. And Manasseh says to Ravashi in the dream, he says, You call us your, your friend, your colleague? You think we're friends of yours? Menashe says to Ravashi, "How dare you? Character- <laughs> you say that we're equals." And then Menashe said to him like this: "I'm going to ask you a halacha question. Let's see if you know the answer." He says, "From where are you required to be- to begin cutting a loaf of bread after you recite the blessing Hamotzi <laughs> lechem That is, you say Hamotzi lechem After that, you cut the bread. From where do you start cutting the bread? So Ravashi uh, Rav says to him. I don't know. I, I don't even know there's a halacha like this. I don't even mark on that. And so Manasha said to him, you don't know where you're supposed to cut the bread after you say hamotzi lechem in Arets? You don't know that? And you call us your colleague, your friend? So Ravashi said to Manasha, listen, teach me this halacha. What, teach me the halacha, the law. And tomorrow, tomorrow in my lecture, I'll cite it in your name. During my lecture, I'll say, Manasha taught me this halacha. So Benasher says to Ravashi, "You cut the loaf of bread after you say a motzi. Where do you cut it? Where the crust begins, as a result of the baking. That is where it starts to bake, and it's the crust. That's where you cut it." So Ravashi's <laughs> he never even knew that. He says to Benasher, "Since you're so wise and chacham, and you know so much, what is the reason you engage in idol worship?" And Menashe said to him, "Had you been there at that time, in my time, you would have taken and lifted the hem of your cloak. You would have raised your robe and run after me to do idol worship. That is the fierce desire to engage in idol worship. In my time, was so strong that you would have doing it. You would have been also doing it. You would have come after me. You would have raised the hem of your cloak. That's the pull that there was towards avodah You see." Just to explain for a minute, in the days of prophecy, during the days of Benasha, along with that came like a contra to it. And that was the strong inclination to serve idols. It's like one against the other. See, there was a lot of spirituality in the air. People had to worship something. And if not Hashem, then it had to be some idol. That's why people were serving the malach and, and wasting their money and their children and resources on idols. They, they weren't stupid. They felt a need to serve a God somewhere. There was spirituality. There was that energy in the air. Now, when prophecy disappeared, like in the days of Ravashi and in our days, it all it disappeared. And along with that, the inclination to worship idols was also conquered and defeated. So that's good that there's no more idol worshiping and there's no more desire to do it. But on the other hand, it's also hard to feel spirituality today. <laughs> you don't have the same feeling. That's why it's so hard to feel something when you've Davin. You just like it's hard to feel any. It. It's hard to have Kavana. But back in the days of Menashe, you felt a lot. There was what we call elokut all around you. It comes along with the prophecy. So he says to him, "Uh, that's why uh, I I did it. And um, it was like an, so we see here, it's an uncontrollable urge in those days. But that's what Menashe was telling Ravashi. And it's kind of like, you know, today a person feels he's got to look at his phone. He can't help himself. He's got to look at his phone. Of course, this is worse. This is much stronger. This is a spiritual magnet. That's what Manasha is saying to Ravashi, that in my day, it was not like you think. So don't judge me. Okay, let's just finish the uh, the Gomorrah here. <laughs> I forgot to finish the Gomorrah. It's in that one little pit that's kind of funny at the end. Okay, so Ravashi wakes up from the dream. He comes to class the next day and he said to the sages, as a prelude to his lecture, today... We're going to speak about our teachers, the three kings. He didn't call them a havereinu anymore, Aval he called them moreinu, our rabbis and teachers. We're going to, no more havereinu menashe. It's Moreno menashe, our teacher menashe. So now, first of all, that, that uh, very, it's a very famous uh, Talmud. Um, it kind of goes the other way. We thought that it was all political. That's how it was described before this. But now, according to this, there really was a draw and a pull to do Avodah Zarah, and Menasha was really into it. But there's another important reason uh, I brought this down and it's something uh, really uh, important to know when, when learning Bible in general. There's a few uh, approaches or erroneous approaches, I call it, when it comes to learning Tanakh. Some Jews, are uh, usually from what called the Haredi camp, they don't learn Bible at all because they say like this, who are you to discuss and criticize these saints in the Bible? Now look at Manasseh. All right. He's evil and he's, he's so learned. I mean, so what these people say is they don't learn the Bible because they'll say, do you know what level these people are on in the Bible? These, these figures in the Bible? How dare you say that King David sinned or King Saul sinned or even Manasseh sinned? These people are angels. You can't fathom their spiritual greatness. Uh, And that's how they look at it. And it's true, the people in the Bible are great, but they put them on such a high pedestal that they end up not learning Tanakh at all. Or they learn it when they're little kids in Cheder, you know, up to sixth grade, and then they abort their Bible learning. And from there on, it's just Gomorrah 24-7. And that's why a lot of religious Jews don't know Tanakh. And the only ones learning Bible seriously are the Christians. Now, another erroneous view, and this is the total opposite approach, and it's also wrong. It's learning Bible, what they call begoveinayim, which literally means they look at the, the biblical uh, f- figures straight in the eye. That is, they treat the figures in the Tanakh like re- like regular people, like they're your friend. And so when they read the verses which speak of the sins of these of the biblical figures. But if you don't learn properly and you, and you simplify everything and you start treating them like the guy in the street, that's also wrong. You have to remember that they are way up there. You have to have the right perspective and proper proportions. Let's take King Saul, for instance. For instance King Saul, Um, you know, you read the simple verses when he starts to have his ruach hara, he gets off, uh, he has an evil spirit, up, uh, overcomes him. He's chasing King David all over the place. And somebody who learns Tanakh with Govain, I they'll say he'll start like making fun of Saul and trashing him and saying, What is Meshuggah? Manic, depressive, he's crazy, nuts. No, no, you have to be really careful calling King Saul names because the verse says before that, the chapter right before that, chapter 13 in Shmuel Aleph, when they introduce Saul, they say, So it's translated as, and King Saul was one year in his rule. But literally, it means in Hebrew, ben Shanaba b'malko, means that he was one year old. What, is, what does it mean he was one year old? So the sages say that he was pure as a one-year-old child who never sinned. That's how pure and righteous he was when he started out. Okay, at the end he did sin badly, but know who he is and you have to have the right proportions when relating to these biblical figures. So on the one hand, you got to study Tanakh and analyze the commentaries, but you always have an understanding that these are spiritual giants and they're way up there, and if they sin, and the sages, and the and the commentators, they don't pull any punches. All right? We see their mistakes and their sins, and that's why we want to learn from it. Still, always remember, we're dealing with people on a high level. So again, it's a matter of proportions. So you can't learn with Nayim as if they're your friend, but in order to derive the, the lessons of Tanakh, of these stories, and to learn it properly, and after all, Bible is the foundation of Judaism, so you want to learn it. You can't put them on such a pedestal and say, "Oh no, we can't fathom their greatness, so we're not going to learn Tanakh. That's ridiculous. You have to learn the Bible, but without bringing them down to our level. That's what happened to Ravashi here. He called Menashe his friend, and even the wicked Benasha knew more halacha than Ravashi. And Ravashi wasn't just a great rabbi, as we said; he was the greatest rabbi in the Talmud. Who he compiled the Talmud Bavli. And if Ravashi doesn't know what Menasha knows, what does that say about us?